Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. By all accounts, artificial intelligence is changing how organizations must approach cybersecurity. Not everyone is certain how, though. Well, now a really big working group assembled by the Aspen Institute has come up with specific recommendations on dealing with AI in the cybersecurity context. Here with the highlights, the Institute's Senior Director for Cybersecurity Programs, Jeff Green. Mr. Green, good to have you with us. Great to be here. And we should note you have pretty considerable federal experience in the government working on cybersecurity issues, so you know whereof you speak. But my first question is, and I've heard it a thousand times, AI is really affecting cyber. But exactly how is it affecting cyber? I take that question maybe in a couple of different parts. First, what's happening today and and what can happen in the future? Our paper tried to look a bit into the future. But today and in the past, artificial intelligence or machine learning, as we used to talk about it, there's a bit of an overlap there. It's helping out in a lot of ways. It's making it easier for humans to spend their time focusing on the most important alerts and allowing them to put to the side some of the things that maybe they don't need to spend as much time. The machine learning and AI tools can correlate incidents, see through big volumes of data that a human would never be able to do. It can connect up a particular incident to another incident, again, that would appear unconnected through whether it's an IP address or other indicators of compromise. It can detect unusual behaviors, basically try to solve some of the human capital issues that we've had in cybersecurity. So that's been going on for quite a while the ability to detect what we call living off the land type of attacks, where you're not talking about a specific piece of malware that you can detect going forward. That was really what we wanted to get into. There's a lot of speculation. If I could tell you exactly how it would change cybersecurity, I'd probably be trying to get some seed funding. But the group we got together really tried to think about how we thought it could work and what additional tech capabilities it would add. One of the big ones you hear a lot about is writing better code, trying to get vulnerabilities out from the front end with governments talked about this secure by design, making that a reality, helping with your policies and planning, thinking about, you know, you have four vulnerabilities that are all listed as crucial. Which one should you put your resources to patching first? You can have an intelligent assistant help you figure out things like that. A whole range of things that hopefully we'll see coming online in, in the next few years. And this paper, what we were trying to do here and how did you go about it? It sounds like you had really a large mob of people that know something about cyber coming to impinge on this. What we wanted to do was focus on the end users of these AI tools as opposed to the developers to try to tell organizations, government or otherwise, that are deploying tools today, here are some things that you should think about as you're using them. And we had a conversation, our cyber group meets over the summer, very open-ended about what will, your last question, what will AI do for cyber? And it was somewhat hard to get to concrete recommendations and thoughts because it was such an amorphous future. So what we did was we took our group, which ended up being about 40 people, split them in two and said, half of you write what you think is a feasible future when cybersecurity is really helped by these AI tools. And the other half write a bad future where AI is really enabling the attackers. And then we took those two futures, got in the room, both physically and virtually and said, okay, We want to go towards the good and away from the bad. What are things that we both should do and should not do to help steer us in that direction? So that was our thinking to try to put some bounds around what we're doing. We stopped short of the Skynet future. We said there's no, you know, sentient computer out there, but realistic what we think is going to be coming online. Yeah. In fact, the reality of most algorithms is that they get dumber over time because of the bad data they get fed. 
us humans make them dumber over time is, is one maybe pejorative way to put it. All right. Yeah, so these two scenarios then are what people felt were realistically going to happen. And in fact, they both will happen, right? Because AI will enable the cyber defenders as much as it enables the attackers. Yep. I mean, I think what you're likely to see in the future is something that will land, I've described it as adjacent to the middle of what we describe. The middle, because as you said, it's going to help everyone, but adjacent to it because I'm sure we got some things wrong and didn't see other things. So hopefully it'll be somewhere close to it. And one of our distinguished members, Herb Lynn, wrote some additional thoughts in the paper where he said, you know, good and bad is in the eye of the beholder. For the United States, it's good that we have a cyber command that's able to see into our adversaries' activities. And for the United States, it's bad if North Korea's defenses become better. So there is very much a contextual element to this as well. And I encourage folks to take a look at what Herb wrote, because I think it added some great thoughts. All right. We're speaking with Jeff Green. He's Senior Director for Cybersecurity Programs at the Aspen Institute and former Director of the Cybersecurity Center of Excellence at NIST. And you have some recommendations on what people should do in the way they handle AI. Just give us the highlights. For me, one of the biggest, don't forget everything you already know about cybersecurity. This is new. There are new elements of it. But we have this tendency to find something new and try to say, oh, let's think about it differently. All the basics of cybersecurity hygiene, of cybersecurity practices still remain. Don't forget them as you go. But with regard to these new tools as they're coming online, we really encourage organizations to proactively manage just how much agency they're giving over to an AI tool. Underlying this is that it is, in fact, okay to hand off decisions, but you want to make a conscious choice as to when you're doing that. And we tried to put out some factors that organizations can consider as they're doing it, how much quality control is required of this particular action, if quality is more important, lean maybe less towards giving it over completely? Or what is the impact or risk? Or is it irreversible? If it's a truly irreversible decision that is a bet the company or bet the agency decision, probably shouldn't have a computer making that without any human impact. So we're not telling organizations exactly what to do there, but we're telling them, you know, you can have a tendency when you're sold something new just to drop it in and say it's great. And you need to give some serious thought to it. Sure. And Um, one of the recommendations was log, log, and log more. Great point. Logging is the basics of cybersecurity. We debated whether to include it because it's kind of a like no-duh kind of recommendation. But in the context of these AI tools, it came up in a few different ways, and we ultimately not only included it, but made it one of our more prominent ones. Logs are what allow you to detect intrusions and quantify them if they happen. But logs, which are essentially data, are key to what the AI can do for you. And if it is not getting very current, very up-to-date data, it both will be unable to detect things that are going on and see patterns of potential intrusions you've never seen before. But also a lot of AI-driven, AI-enabled intrusion activity is going to look like normal activity. So you need that level of data the most you can get in order to pick out those proverbial needles from an ever-growing haystack. Yeah, it's almost like the monster in that movie uh, in space looked like a German shepherd. And then when it came in, all of a sudden it morphed into this horrible man-eating, woman-eating device. All right. You had some specific recommendations for the government also. First thing that we wanted to make sure that the government, our view is the government needs to be willing and comfortable leaning in if it sees an AI tool that is a particular risk, either because it enables malicious activity, it could be used to generate Um, whether it is bad physical things or bad cyber things, 
to consider whether acquiring it so you can then license it out for good uses or put controls around it. So hopefully that gives some cover to government folks who really see the need sometimes to step in. We shouldn't just let everything move forward without any government intervention. Second thing is making sure that the proverbial ecosystem, the entire ecosystem benefits from these tools. If good cyber AI enabled tools are only available to the wealthiest and biggest organizations, we will ultimately all be suffering because the you know, unfortunately, the criminals will know where to go and the criminal activity will flow up to the rest of us. So focus on whether it is pushing tools out through open source incentives or other ways to make sure they're widely available. And the final thing we talked about is making sure that there's integration, computer science, data science, technical training. It needs to be integrated at some level. Coders need to learn cyber. They need to learn AI, vice versa. We don't want to have just a few unicorns that know how cyber AI and engineering interact. Necessarily to have a engineer or a true computer developer know the depths of it, but they need to be able to issue spot to know when to say, okay, I want to bring in the expert here to make sure we're not introducing new risks that I just haven't thought of. And what happens with the paper now? So we've done a few events on it. We've gotten a good amount of interest actually from governments around the globe, and we are hoping to continue to help educate on, on, again, these simple things. And that's been, for me, one of the most interesting pickups is people using this, you know, this is anecdotally, to, to drive their organizations both to think before they implement. Um, I think one of our recommendations is don't fall for the hype, but also to make sure they're applying all those existing security practices in place. There never will be a silver bullet to cybersecurity. The best we can do is put together you know, a bunch of 10% solutions and five or six of them, and you're 50% of the way there. Jeff Green is Senior Director for Cybersecurity Programs at the Aspen Institute, also former Director of the Cybersecurity Center of Excellence at NIST. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the recommendations at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. 
In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to 
recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, 
that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.